Welcome back to ITS Podcast. This is the 17th episode, September 2022. And I'm Mariam Kavishka from Ahmedabad University, India. Today, we have a book that Haluk has reviewed and it's titled Climate Change Adaptation for Transportation System. This book is written by Michael Taylor. We have a special guest from the University of Leeds. Professor Gustav Makula is with us to talk about his research. And for change, this time, we want to start our program with the interview. The interview with Gustav. Hi there, and uh, today uh, we have Professor uh, Gustav Makula as our special guest for IEEE ITS podcast. In the beginning, let me give you some introduction about uh, Gustav. Professor Gustav Makula received his MSc in Engineering Physics, Complex Adaptive Systems from Chalmers University of Technology in 2004. Right after his graduation, he joined Volvo and spent 11 years in this company in different positions as project manager, technical specialist, and system manager till 2015. During this time, he received his PhD degree from Chalmers University, defending his uh, thesis on driver behavior models for evaluating automotive active safety, from neural dynamics to vehicle dynamics. In 2015, he joined University of Leeds as an associate professor till now, where he is a professor of applied behavioral modeling. He applies quantitative methods and models to the study of human behavior and cognition in road traffic. His research is guided by two distinct but related long-term aims. First of them, a better understanding of how humans perceive and act in the world, especially through mathematical modeling of human behavior. Second one is safer road traffic by improving interactions between humans and technology, not least with respect to vehicle automation. Thank you, Gustav, for being with us. I give a short introduction about you and I want to ask you, would you like to add something? Did I miss something? Hi, Mariam. Very nice to be here. Uh, it's my pleasure. No, I think it was a great uh, introduction. Thank you so much for uh, for introducing me. So, so basically, uh, you could say uh, in a simpler fashion that I'm I'm really into maths. I'm really into human psychology and behavior. And it so happens that transport is a very nice place to combine those two things. Yes. That's why I, I do what I do. <laughs> That's interesting. That's why we have you here for your precious work. So in one of the researches that I saw and one of your research interests is how multi-sensory inter integration in driving simulators affects drivers, vehicle control. I mean, how they control the vehicle. Could you please mm -hmm. explain what do you mean by multi-sensory and how you want to integrate them? Just an explanation mm -hmm. of this work. Of course, of course. No, I think it's an interesting example of, of what I just said before about combining maths and, and human psychology. So, so multi-sensory integration basically means that uh, so you, we, we as humans, we have these different senses, right? We see and we hear and we, we feel and, and so on. And uh, multi-sensory integration is when our brain combines information from multiple of those senses. <clears throat> so when 
Uh, so in driving, uh, the two most important ones are uh, typically uh, vision, seeing, and our vestibular senses uh, in our inner ear where we feel ourselves uh, moving or rotating uh, in space. Um, so, so so, that's, for example, uh, when you get motion sick, it's because your uh, visual vestibular sensory integration is not quite figuring out what's happening. Um, so... Uh, for us in Leeds, University of Leeds, where I work, uh, driving simulation and simulation in general is a big thing. We have a, a nice, big, fancy uh, driving simulator, one of the best ones in the world, I dare say. Uh, uh, so so it's important for us to make that one as, as good as possible, as realistic as possible. And as you may know, if you've seen these simulators, they tend to have these uh, motion bases. So it's a little bit like if you've uh, been to... Uh, an amusement park and I've been in those things where you see like a movie and something shakes you around a bit. Um, it's the same in a, in a driving simulator. And if you're listening to this podcast, you probably know your way <laughs> around like, those. Like 40, 40 movies. Yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. <laughs> That's exactly what yes. I'm talking about. Um, so, so, so the trick then, obviously, because that movement is not the same as a car moving in, in reality, uh, we're just trying to get it as close as possible while staying within that room where the driving simulator fits. <laughs> so we have to fake it sort of a little bit. And we do that by trying to trick the, the vestibular senses, these movement um, senses. So, so that can be done in a, in a number of different ways. But one thing I wanted to do was I wanted to try to pick up some models from neuroscience about how multisensory integration works because it, it's been found uh, in lots of uh, research on both humans and animals that the brain seems to be doing uh, something like figuring out how reliable each sensory cue is. So if you uh, see something and, and feel something, if you find yourself after a bit of experience that one signal is a little bit more reliable than the other, uh, the a little uh, less noisy, for example, then your brain starts relying more on the more reliable signal. Uh, it makes sense, but, but, but you can sort of prove that and you can apply maths for for, for this, describing it in quantitative detail. So, um, yeah, so, so in one project, we, we did that and we combined that kind of model from neuroscience with a model that we had from before of, of how people control their vehicle when they're driving. And it turns out that that really explained very nicely some things that weren't hadn't been explained before about how humans behave in driving simulators and, and steer their cars in driving simulators uh, as a function of... Uh, how the movement system changes, basically. So that can help us uh, make uh, make uh, driving simulators that are more realistic and more useful for research and uh, development. That that's very interesting. I can imagine uh, working on that simulator even. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, it's a it's a nice piece of equipment. <laughs> yes, yes, I I believe in that. But I have one question: uh, Have you uh, gathered any data from the uh, people? I mean, uh, not sensors and electronics part or mathematical part. Have you asked question or survey uh, run for uh, these people who uh, work on these simulators? You must probably. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, yeah, no, definitely. We, that, that's very important as well. Uh, it's it's less my area, but definitely something. We do a lot at the uh, the driving simulator. We we ask people how they feel about different systems. So maybe we can use our simulator to try different alternatives for how uh, an automated vehicle should drive in traffic. Uh, and then we can have people sit along in that, and then they can give qualitative feedback afterwards about which uh, system they like the best. For example, that's one example. Thank you. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm.
So uh, in uh, one of your papers, you mentioned a visual manual and auditory cognitive distractions. What are these terms and how can they affect our safety? Good question. Sort of technical words. Uh, they both have to do with distractions. And distractions, I think we sort of know from, from everyday language, was sort of what we mean. It's something that pulls our attention away from that which we ought to be doing. So when we're driving, we can be distracted. Uh, by our phone, for example, and when we're out walking, we can be distracted, for example, by our phone, <laughs> uh, uh, but lots of other things, of course. But it's sort of a, a vague term and a quite complex term. And so then when we do research on distraction, we tend to try to divide things up into different types of distraction. So, so what we mean by visual manual distraction is something that engages your eyes and hands, basically. So the simplest case would be when you're driving and you just want to sort of uh, look for the button where you turn off the radio and you do that and you turn it off. Uh, it's it's quite easy. You know where the button is. You just have to look and then and press it. Visual manual distraction. Uh, whereas auditory cognitive is something where you don't involve your your eyes and hands, uh, but rather sort of your your mind and and your hearing auditory cognitive. Uh, so for example, uh, listening to a podcast while you drive would be one example. Not uh, a of, podcast, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a very engaging, interesting uh, podcast uh, that could be uh, distracting in that way. And then uh, in terms of what effects on safety they, they have, uh, it's, uh, it's it's quite different. So so they, you can sort of imagine that if you are visually manually distracted, you might miss things which are happening right now around you in traffic, for example. Uh, or you, I mean, if your hand is occupied elsewhere, you might be poorer at steering the car if you need to do that suddenly. Whereas interestingly, with these auditory cognitive distractions, you typically tend to be quite good at seeing what's going on right now and controlling the vehicle, uh, maybe even better sometimes um, uh, uh, while distracted in that way. But what can happen is that we're, since our working memory is sort of busy with this uh, this thinking about whatever we're thinking about, daydreaming or a podcast or whatever, mm -hmm. then we can be poorer at, at sort of thinking ahead. Uh, so maybe I see a traffic sign that tells me that something is coming that I should be sort of planning ahead for. And we tend to be worse at doing that kind of thing uh, when we're distracted in that auditory cognitive uh, way, which can also have important safety implications, of course. That, that is interesting. Just a quick question. Some of us, uh, especially on two-wheelers, we listen to the GPS sound um, auditory. Uh, can we include that the, to this auditory cognitive? Yeah, I, I would say so. I would say so. I mean, I think uh, it's... Um, I haven't seen any research on that specifically, and, it's been, and, it's, and not in, in the cycling uh, setting. But, uh, but yes, I mean, while you are listening for that one or maybe waiting for it, there, there could be an element of that type an of uh, distraction. That, but, uh, but I think, I mean, since you're, it's something, it's, it's, I, do, I, wouldn't typically, I wouldn't expect it to be a very severe distraction. Maybe, maybe the, the, the severe distraction comes if you sort of can't quite hear what it's saying or you can't quite understand what it's saying. That could make you start sort of lose focus on, on uh, predicting what's upcoming in traffic around you, of course. Yes, uh, yes, mm. that's true. I, I agree with you on this. You discussed uh, time pressure, I believe, in the same uh, paper it is. Uh, mm -hmm. What is this and how it can impact the collision possibility? 
Yeah, it's an, uh, it's an interesting other uh, aspect of uh, for sure. So, so, so time pressure—it's sort of what it sounds like, right? It's we're under pressure to do something fast. We're sort of being rushed uh, because we're late for a meeting, or because something is happening in the immediate environment that that uh, prompts us to ask. Uh, quickly, so 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 in general, what happens if if we experience as humans time pressure? It it causes our decision making to happen more quickly. Uh, we might be less certain about our decisions. I mean, this is sort of obvious, but it's also uh, possible to prove it uh, and and see it empirically and with models and so on. And, and we sort of yeah make decisions faster, so we, they might be slightly less accurate. But we also might prioritize decision that leads to outcomes that take us to our goals faster. For example, um, so, so for ex so um, for example, if 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 I'm in uh, traffic as a pedestrian or as a car, and I'm 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 waiting to cross a road. Where there's crossing traffic. If I am under time pressure, quite naturally, I think you sort of recognize this probably from yourself, but we see in, in, in our simulator studies, for example, that if we put people in a state of time pressure, we tell them that there is a time pressure for them to uh, to engage in, and, pe and people do this even though it's a simulated environment to some extent, they, they accept smaller gaps and, and sometimes uh, slightly less safe gaps than uh, in this traffic. So, so that, that can be a challenge, but... Um, uh, on the other hand, of course, time pressure can be good. So if there if there is like a safety critical situation that arises, if the car in front of you breaks all of a sudden, then you feel time pressure from that, and then maybe acting really quickly, even though you're not doing the perfect thing, might be better than than reacting very late or not at all. Right. So so it's uh, I mean we, we we as humans we respond to time pressure because. Uh, in evolutionary times, it's been beneficial for us to to react faster when there has been time pressure. So most often, it's it helps us. We, I mean, it may may but most often it means that I get across the road faster and I get to my meeting in time, which is good for me. Uh, but it can involve they can can lead to safety risks, of course. Uh, so so basically, time pressure, for example, for the pedestrian has to cross the road is like a deadline to finish the paper and send it. So exactly. we have to, yeah. yeah we have to reach that goal. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I think more yeah. people in most professions are are familiar with um, yes with time yes. pressure. Yes, uh, yes including academics true. for sure. <laughs> in um, another paper, uh, you discuss the dangerous behavior of pedestrians while crossing the road. Uh, mm -hmm. What are these risky behaviors? Uh, how they can cause some possible accidents, and uh, how uh, what can impact it. Mm -hmm. The, the things we have mentioned before uh, in terms of distractions and, and time pressure are, are definitely there. Uh, we see that they can can lead to um, uh, unsafe behavior uh, while crossing a road. Uh, but there are also some other interesting aspects uh, relating to, to human visual perception. So one interesting finding um, uh, has puzzled people a little bit for, for a while is that so, so you would think that as, as humans, when we look at uh, a road where we want to cross and we see vehicles coming and there's like, you can see if the car is a certain sort of time away or a distance away, you, uh, one one guess would be that we try to judge how long, how long time will it take until the car gets here. And then if that time is longer than what the time, than the time it will take me to cross the road, then I should cross, right? Because then it's safe. I'll get across before the car arrives. Um, but actually, it's not quite that simple. Uh, so it's been found uh, quite consistently that if uh, for a given such time gap, if, if the car is, say, four seconds away, 
people will have a greater tendency to accept the gap if the car is driving at a higher speed. So that is a little bit counterintuitive, perhaps. But it means, if you think about it, it means that if, if the gap is the same, but the speed is higher, it means that the distance is higher, right? So the for the same gap uh, at, a, at a higher speed, the car is further away. So there's been different theories. Maybe people are thinking, looking both at time gap and distance. But what we've shown recently is that it seems like actually you can explain these patterns quite nicely by considering something called uh, looming, uh, visual looming, which is basically, if you think about that that car, the way it looks to you, when it's far away, it's small. And when it's in, in your visual field, right, it looks small when yes. it's far away. Yes. And when it gets closer, it grows. And, and that growing over time is called looming. And it seems like actually you can explain these patterns of gap acceptance very nicely by just assuming that actually people look at that visual looming. Uh, um, so those, uh, if you, with that kind of simple model, it's why one of my PhD students, Kai Chan, who has, has found this interesting result, we can explain these patterns quite nicely. Uh, that that is very interesting. Yes, I, I never thought about it that it can be so counterintuitive. But yes, you're right. Uh, now that I think about it, sometimes this happens like that. To to find this result, of course, this paper. I hope it's published so I can ask this question. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, what was your uh, methodology to study this? How you studied this um, mm -hmm. uh, risk and risk factors? Yeah, so I mean, uh, in our case, uh, as I mentioned, we do a lot of simulation work, simulator uh, studies. So, for, so for pedestrian behavior, um, it's um, uh, we we have this uh, relatively new, uh, uh, very nice uh, piece of equipment that we call Hiker. Uh, it's a uh, an abbreviation for a long name we don't need to go into but basically it's a pedestrian simulator and the way it works is, is that it's uh it's like a room it's, it's a if you're familiar with the term it's a cave uh, virtual reality system so it's like a room that you go into uh with walls on the floor and then there's projection on the walls on the floor so it's a relatively big space where you can walk freely um and uh and then the, you can see this world around you and it tracks your movement your body and your head so you get like a perspective correct view of the surroundings so it's quite immersive it's it's like um uh, it's it i mean a lot of people also do pedestrian research with these head mounted uh, displays which are also great in many ways but the hiker is nice in that it's sort of uh, you uh, you can see your own body, which makes sometimes for more natural movement. You can also have these, you can have like a, a phone in your hand, for example, and interact with it naturally. Um, uh, and for, in some different ways, it, it, had, it has some nice uh, benefits. So yeah, it, the short answer is like in, in, in virtual reality. Uh, the, the the long answer is in our really fancy uh, pedestrian simulator. <laughs> yes, in the in the pedestrian simulator. Yes, I yeah. understand. The same simulator that we are started our talk with it. <laughs> yes. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So we have both. Uh, so I, we, what we mentioned before is it was our driving simulators. We have a few different ones, and we also connect them so we can have people uh, driving in the driving simulator interacting with a, a human participant in a pedestrian simulator. So, yeah, lots of cool. So that, that is very interesting. Actually, I think many of our uh, listeners can go later, take a look what are the simulators, mm -hmm. how they work and uh, know many things about it, many details. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah there's another, there's a, a preprint out from another PhD student called Amir Hossein Kalantari on this uh, distributed uh, simulation work and then some other past work from our group as well on that. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Please do go ahead and read those papers. Sure. Thank you. So, um, this this is very interesting. However, when uh, I I see that this uh this work is done in Leeds in the UK mm -hmm. and Correct. 
um uh, the next question that uh, comes to me because when we are talking about behavior beha behavior is related to the culture uh, and not only that but it brings some other factors also so culture creates a different behavior in other parts of the world uh how universal these mathematical models can be Uh, mm -hmm. Not only yours, but other ones. We try to bring everything into mathematical model. But how we give, how we can bring these different types of behavior in model? If if people in India, let's say, they behave mm -hmm. differently while crossing yeah, yeah, yeah. the road. They... No, I mean for sure, uh, it's uh, it, it's a very important question, and I totally agree with what you're what you're saying. I mean, I think there's different different levels of it, um, and. Uh, uh, I mean, yeah. So, like you say, it's and it's actually not only culture, right? It's other factors factors as well. It's like age and uh, like elderly people, children, uh, uh, and so on. Lots of different. Even temperature can make a change, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Weather, <laughs> um, exactly. If it's raining heavily, I tend to try to cross the road faster. <laughs> um so i mean but but one way we can deal with this that seems to work in quite a lot of cases is that that even though the details of the behaviors are are, are different um uh, uh, the, the 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 basics of it seem to be in many cases roughly the same across uh, cultures and demographics so so this basic idea of of feeling safe about a gap before you cross that's sort of relatively universal but then how big a gap you need uh, for feeling safe might differ wildly uh, uh, based on various factors so so in in, in the sort of benign case and if we're lucky uh, in some cases we can find that the same mathematical models work across uh, demographics and cultures but we need to tweak the parameters so to speak so we found this in in some cases um Uh, in the literature, there's been work on age, for example, uh, and, and we've done a study where we we did exactly the same experiment uh, in in the UK and Japan, and we found that the same models worked, but the the, the Japanese participants were more careful than the, these uh, UK crazies <laughs> just <laughs> crossing the road um, whenever. Uh, no, I mean they, they were nothing excessive, but it, it, there were these slight differences, right? Yes. Yes. Um, but but of course, I mean, if 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 circumstances change completely uh, in some places in the world, the tra world traffic is just enormously dense, and and there's people everywhere. And then, I mean, our study that sort of looks at a simplified situation with with one pedestrian and a string of cars is is just sim too simple in that way, right? Because that's a scenario that never happens, maybe uh, in a certain place. Um, so so yes, uh, these are definitely challenging questions. Thank you. It was, it was a good answer. Thank you so much. Um, in uh, another article of yours, uh, you uh, talk about learning to interpret the novel EHMI, uh, the effect of vehicle uh, kinematic, kinematic, and EHMI familiarity on pedestrian crossing behavior. Uh, for our listeners, I want to say that this journal already was published in a journal of safety research. Uh, mm -hmm. What are these effects? Can you elaborate a bit? Of course, yes. This is something uh, we've looked at a bit. And th this specific particular paper is by a um, research fellow in our group called Yimun Lee. Uh, so she's been looking at these EHMI, which, which is short for external 
human-machine interfaces. So human-machine interfaces, as the listeners of this podcast possibly know, is like when we interact with some kind of technology like a computer or a car. And an external human-machine interface then is a human-machine interface that sits on the outside of a car is the idea. So the, the, the background to this is that when people started thinking more closely about how humans and automated vehicles should interact uh, a few years ago and the, the sort of big automated vehicle hype um uh, then people were like hmm humans uh, like they do give gestures to each other they have eye contact with drivers but what if there comes a car with no driver how are we how are we going to re replace this and then there's been a lot of research on whether we need to uh, add these kinds of external human machine interfaces to automated vehicles mm -hmm. to to make for better interaction with human road users. Mm -hmm. um, so, so yeah, so in this specific paper that you mentioned, uh, learning and interpreting new EHMIs, we, we looked at one interesting question was, which was that if, if you are exposed to some, to a new, I mean, because there's been lots of crazy ideas, right? So put eyes on the, the car that look in different directions, put a hand that's sort of waving at you, or should it be like a text message or just some blinking lights? Mm -hmm. uh, so we had done a, one a project where we did lots of research, tried to come up with the best possible user interface um, for this. And, and that was like a pretty still quite abstract, like a, a, a strip of light uh, around the car on the outside that sort of pulsated a little bit uh, or flashed in different ways to try to indicate different intentions of the vehicle. So for example, this some uh, sort of uh, pulsating light band meant, I'm yielding to you, you can go first now, pedestrian. Mm -hmm. But of course, when you see that the first time, if you've never heard about that, it's not maybe obvious to you what that means. Okay, here yes. is this some kind of new ambulance or whatever that's sort of <laughs> what's this flashing about um and then uh, so th then we studied that we we had pedestrians or participants come to the simulator and and experience interactions with this kind of vehicle with an hmi and then we saw if they learned over time what this meant and and they actually did uh, so uh, after a while uh, a number of interactions with this car they sort of started crossing earlier when they saw this this um, pattern this um, ehmi but what we also compared to then was a, a, a current existing one which in the i mean that's different between different cultures but in the uk it's it's quite consistent that if you flash your headlights mm -hmm. at another road user it means the same thing i'm yielding to you you can go before me Mm -hmm. uh, so if 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 I'm a pedestrian standing at a, a zebra crossing and I see a car coming and it flashes its headlights, I typically in the UK I would interpret that as saying, "Okay, I can go now." He, he has seen me; he is stopping for me. That, that that is interesting. That's a cultural difference. And in other parts of the world, it means don't dare. I, exactly. I go yeah, first. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Get out of the way. So yeah, it's a tricky one. But at least yeah. in this case, yes, we had you um, participants who had, um, I mean, had been in the UK for. A, substantial amount of time. Uh, so they were probably aware of this um, thing. We didn't talk about it before, but we had uh, some participants, instead of seeing that EHMI, they saw this flashing headlight and they crossed earlier sort of straight off the bat, right? So it's just it's just interesting to see that uh, uh, it might be useful, for example, for these EHMIs to sure. consider local norms, maybe. Uh -huh. Um, these, these pedestrians were uh, they were told beforehand that uh, this is the no, they no. figured out themselves that yeah, yeah. so, so they all they, we all just told them you you want to cross the road here and there's a car that'll come you stay safe cross you want to cross the road stay safe Very um and then uh, in in the people who were seeing a car with with flashing headlights they sort of immediately more or less 
crossed in front of it. Whereas with that flashing EHMI new thing that uh, some other people never had seen before, those people, it took them a while to figure out that essentially it meant the same thing as a flashing headlight. I mean, an interesting question that, I, that we have, haven't looked into is whether maybe uh, in some other country where the flashing headlight meant what you said or, or isn't used at all, maybe the learning would have been slower or different, right? Mm, that, that is a, that's a question. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we can later look at that. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. Uh, so uh, I, you have uh, many interesting uh, papers and research going on, but uh, I saw one more paper which, you know, caught my eye, and that was with uh, Srinivasan and uh, other mm -hmm. yes. uh, colleagues, yeah. Comparing merging behaviors uh, observed in uh, naturalistic data with behaviors generated by a machine learn model. Now we come back to the discussion that we had a few minutes back. Mm -hmm. And uh, for uh, our listeners, this uh, paper was published in 2021 in uh, IEEE International Intelligent Transportation System Conference. Mm -hmm. uh, could you please explain some points of this work and uh, what were your uh, findings in this research? Sure. Yeah. So this is Aravinda Srinivasan, as you mentioned, uh, another research fellow in our group. Um, so this is an interesting sort of contrast a little bit to what we were saying before about models, because here we're looking at another important type of model, uh, which are machine learned models that are sort of neural networks, black box models that you just give them a lot of data and they learn to behave like humans that way. Uh, whereas the, the models I mostly do in my research is more sort of based on psychology, cognitive science, an idea about underlying mechanisms. So they're not black box models in that sense. But there's, I think machine learning models are really important uh, in this space. They have an important role to fill. Um, but but quite often, since they need such big data sets uh, to, uh, to be developed, uh, quite often the people who do machine learning modeling, for my taste, maybe not enough at the details of the human behavior that's involved. So quite often you do your machine learn model and then you sort of check, yeah, it sort of captures the, the overall patterns in the, in the human behavior data. And it does so better than the other models that others have published before. So that's that's good. We've, we've made a better model. But then we sort of asked the question, but, but how how well, how close to human behavior do they actually behave? Um, so we sort of dove deeper into the data and looked at that. Uh, and, and what um, uh, Aravinda and, and we found was that, interestingly, they, they these models captured some types of behavioral phenomena. So for example, uh, in merging, so merging was uh, on highways was the scenario we were looking at specifically in this case. Uh, if, if you're on a merging strip wanting to go get onto a highway, you can imagine that if there's a car on the highway already uh, and you're sort of unsure of whether you're going to go before it or after it, um, if if there the more there is like a clear uh, case of one vehicle having the lead over the other, right? So if I'm as a merging vehicle, I have a, even if a quite slight advantage in time over the vehicle on the highway, I tend to go first. And if it's the other way around, I tend to go second. So, I mean, quite a basic pattern that we expected to find in the data. We found it in the data and we found it in the machine learned model prediction. So the model had learned that from the data, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but then we looked at another thing that we expected to find in the data, which was uh, courtesy lane changes. So in, in a situation where we're merging, but we're actually, it's not maybe as clear who's going to go first. Uh, uh, you're probably, I mean, maybe also culture dependent, but uh, in many places, at least there, there will be a tendency of the vehicle on the highway to change lanes, to leave space for the merging vehicle, right? Mm -hmm. And yes, we found that in the data. If, if there was uh, this 
kind of conflict uh, of, of both vehicles, uh, have not, no one having a lead over the other, there was an increased tendency of lane changes and, and that at all. Uh, so, uh, so this is just an interesting way of seeing that even though these machine learned models can pick up patterns of, of human-like behavior, we don't really know which patterns they actually pick up until we go in and look in detail. So this is just something to be aware of when we're if we're using these machine learned models for various purposes, for example, in, in automated uh, driving, uh, this needs to be considered, I think. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, a good uh, source of data uh, set also is needed for uh, this uh, machine learning models to be competent in this, uh, as you said, uh, yeah, yeah, more complicated sure. scenarios, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, so uh, we talked about some of your research and papers published and conferences. At the moment, what is your recent project in hand? I saw on your website, uh, Commotion and Shape It. Uh, what mm -hmm. are these about? What are you going to work on? Yeah, Commotion and Shape It, both of them. Um, Commotion is, is a UK project um, funded by the Engineering and Physical Sciences Research Council. And uh, Shape It is an EU Marie Curie uh, doctoral training network. Mm -hmm. And both of them, at least my part in both of them, uh, are about modeling interactions between road users because this. Uh, uh, future challenge of having automated vehicles that interact with humans we we need we want to understand and model those interactions better so so the, yeah that's a, just a really interesting uh, further example of this idea of sort of maths and psych, uh, psychology and human behavior put together in transport because in, in the kind of models I've been describing previously, it's been about modeling one human sort of perception, decision making and, and body control, which is challenging enough in itself. But now if we then have to consider how that human relates to other humans around it, it becomes really complex uh, because now the, the, that human also need to have what you can call like a theory of mind that human needs to. Uh, consider what others might be up to, but also maybe how how that how I can affect the intentions of others uh, by my behavior or by, for example, communication. So we get into communication as well. So the the complexity of of, of the thing just explodes. But it's it's so nice as well because it brings in so many other areas of, of psychology and neuroscience. Um, so there's lots of models on these on these things like theory of mind, communication, and so on in these more basic sciences that we can then as research in, in transport um, pull, uh, pull from and make applied models, which I find really um, interesting and, and exciting. Uh, that, that, that is uh, well said, uh, Gustav. But is it always possible to simulate human behavior? With <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's a good question. Um, is, it, is it always possible to simulate human behavior? I mean, I, I think generally, if, if, we have, if we have data, uh, we can always, on a certain behavior, we can always come up with some model. I mean, even like a black box a neural network model that sort of sort of recreates those observations. So in that sense, we can simulate the behavior. But the tricky bit is to uh, to simulate something that we haven't seen in our data, right? So something is some that is between the data points in the data set, or even outside the range of observations in the data set. Uh, so, so that's um, especially that that kind of extrapolation is always a challenge, and I think especially for machine learned models, it's quite hard to predict uh, what's happening outside, um, and we generally wouldn't expect them to do very well if we extrapolate too far from from the data set that we've been 
looking at. Um, so, so for, for example, a very important case is that uh, in traffic, we, we have these large data sets of, of, of how people behave and interact and so on. Uh, but but safety critical situations, even if we collect data for days, it's we, we might not see a single safety critical event, right? So so even though crashes and and near crashes are really important for for society uh, and an important problem to solve, uh, it is just really difficult to get data for it, right? So 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 getting machine learned models to cover these bits is, is really challenging. So I think um, uh, for that reason, the, the, uh, my hope is that we can sort of combine the two approaches, uh, more mechanistic models based on cognitive insights and so on with machine learned models to, to cover more cases. Because in theory, at least, these cognitive models should have better capabilities at uh, uh, generalizing. We can we can develop the cognitive mechanisms based on what we know about near crash behavior, for example, and so on. Uh, but but that's very much sort of a, a frontier of research. It's not something that's solved. It's, it's a future challenge. What do you think about the future? Will we have some safer environment after the presence of autonomous uh, cars or you think that we are going to face some unexpected chaos? Yeah, that's a good question. I, <laughs> I, uh, and I think we're seeing some chaos already, right? It's a bit of a mixed bag, and there's a lot of discussion about. I mean, the, the automated vehicles are being tested on on public roads at the moment, and there's been a lot of debate about whether that's appropriate and in what ways it can be appropriate. Um, so, so the, it's it's not an area of deep expertise for me, uh, but my understanding of the of the current data is sort of that the these these the version of, of automation that is more widespread in deployment, these lower levels of automation, sort of highway autopilot kinds of systems. Uh, it, it is not clear, I think, at the moment that it actually improves safety over manual driving with good active safety systems. Mm -hmm. uh, and there are also some clear examples. There's been some high-profile crashes, uh, some areas where these systems seem to have problems, like with stationary vehicles uh, and so on. So, so that's one aspect. I think, on the other hand, for more limited deployments uh, with higher levels of automation, it seems like the data are pointing to uh, the um, these uh, systems being able to avoid the kinds of crashes that humans get into. That's my impression of the, the available literature, uh, um, at least in these areas. But there might also, there's also some literature that suggests that there is a tendency for these automated vehicles to, to get into some kinds of crashes that humans don't tend to get into so much. They tend to get rear-ended more, for example, perhaps because they do things that human drivers don't uh, quite expect. So I think there's, uh, from these more limited deployments, I think there's like a positive safety message overall. That's my impression. Uh, but then actually scaling that up to more wider deployments and so on is, of course, a much uh, longer term prospect. Yes, yes. And uh, uh, it has become, that's the that's reason it's become such a, you know, important multidisciplinary and interdisciplinary research to solve these ideas. Even mm -hmm. philosophers are, so yeah, we yeah. had actually one uh, colleague philosopher in our, uh, one of, as one of our uh, guests uh, to have a talk on this also. Uh, well, uh, thank you so much, Gustav. You want to add anything to whatever we discussed right now? Do you want to add something? Or if you have any suggestions for uh, other young researchers? Thank you for saying other young researchers. <laughs> uh, no, I think it's been a great uh, talk. Uh, really good uh, points. Uh, I mean, 
suggestions for for young researchers. There, there's some. Um, well, one thing I mentioned sometimes uh, is there's this guy called uh, Dijkstrom that you might might have heard of. Uh, was a I think a computer scientist uh, or mathematician, maybe I'm not sure actually, uh, who uh, who developed uh, a very famous algorithm for for pathfinding. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he, he has these three golden rules for for researchers. Um, so so you can Google those Dijkstra D I J K S T R A um, three golden rules. And, uh, and and the one I really like uh, of his three ones, but all three are good. But one I really like is that uh, as a researcher we should aim to do something that we are uniquely well placed to do because there's always going to be these fads in research, right? Lots of people get the same ideas around the same time. We see this a lot around automated driving, for example. Uh, and if if you have the same idea and the same uh, sort of uh, skill set and the same equipment as everyone else, then it's not clear that you're going to do the job better than anyone else. In all likelihood, there's going to be a bunch of papers doing roughly the same thing. So he's just saying, think about in what ways you have some, possibly some kind of something that's unique, maybe because you know something, some skill uh, that is that, that is rare, or that you have access to some data or some bit of equipment that others don't have access to, uh, or, or most often a combination of those things, right? Maybe there's no one else with such a nice simulator as you have, and the kind of uh, modeling skills that, that you have. And then you can combine those things and you can do something that no one else can do. And then, you're, then you never have to worry about getting scooped <laughs> in your research. <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, it was a pleasure talking to you. And I would like to thank you for the time that you spent with us, Gustav. It's been a pleasure, Mario. Yes, yes. Thank and I, I will share uh, Gustav's website with all of you. So you can uh, go through it. If you want, if you have some ideas, you can just drop him an email or something. Thank you. Now let us listen to Haluk, who has picked up a very interesting book today to review. This is the book review section for ITS podcast. Read by Dr. Halukaran, Fırat University, Elazığ, Turkey. The book title is Climate Change Adaptation for Transportation Systems and consists of 344 pages. Published by Elsewhere in 2021. Written by Michael Taylor. In this book, the author draws attention to a current climate change-based risk assessment for transportation in the near future. Transportation systems face many challenges. Climate change is an example, providing a new raft of challenges for transportation network and infrastructure owners, managers and operators. The reality and potential global impacts of climate change have widely been discussed. The feature task for transportation agencies is to keep their infrastructure and systems climate resilient, able to serve the communities, societies and economic in their jurisdictions. This is essential in maintaining efficient and safe transportation operations and should reduce or help prevent excessive increases in feature costs, such as congestion, delays, service disruption, supply chain disruption, and severance. On the demand side, ensuring resilience will require transportation policies, plans and incentives for travel behavior changes by the community, 
as part of wider climate change mitigation initiatives. On the supply side, climate change adaptation is the essential concern for transportation agencies. Existing infrastructure may require rehabilitation, refurbishment or retrofitting to make it more adaptable along with new methods for the management and maintenance of the infrastructure. Planning and design methods will require review, evaluation and revision. New infrastructure will need to be planned, designed, constructed, maintained and operated to accommodate the shifts in climate that may occur over the operational lives of the infrastructure assets. Monitoring and review are key considerations in the adaptation learning process that transportation agencies will have to adopt. Climate resilient infrastructure should then offer improved service reliability, increased asset life and protection for asset returns. Given the uncertainties that still surround potential climate change at the local or regional level, flexible and adaptive approaches are required in the provision and operation of infrastructure. The uncertainties which in the long term include social and technological change as well as climate change need to be recognized and accepted even if they cannot be adequately described. This will provide the means to ensure resilience across a range of future climate scenarios. Policy analysts and decision makers require access to high quality information, comprehensive data collection, consistent and expecting databases, increasing knowledge and deepening understanding of the impacts of climate change and suitable analytical techniques to ensure informed planning and decision making. This access to information needs to be complemented by the development of technical and institutional capacities to manage climate-related risks. This book is intended to provide guidance towards this consideration. Overall, this book presents and discusses three major themes for climate change adaptation for consideration by transportation system managers. First, the options for changing practice, not merely refining or improving current practice. Second, risk management and the development of adaptation frameworks and pathways accompanied by the introduction, development and use of decision support tools that account for uncertainty and a mix of short and long-term impacts on system performance. Third, in terms of the natural phenomena affecting transportation systems and themselves affected by climate change, the central role of water in its many uses in the degradation and limitation of the performance of transportation facilities, assets and systems.
Temperature cannot be ignored either, but water in the wrong place or in the wrong amount is always a problem. This book is intended as an introductory guide to climate change adaptation for transportation systems, for systems managers and operators, researchers and students. The expectation is that these people will have backgrounds in engineering, planning, economics, project management and similar disciplines, but are unlikely to be climate scientists. Thank you, Haluk. Facing climate change right in front of us, the number of cyclones, hurricanes and tornadoes simultaneously hitting us and destroying cities this is the right time to move toward more sustainable mobility and transportation. It was very interesting. Dear listeners, we are looking for volunteers to join us. Let us know if you are interested, if you have any idea to add or learn any specific field of research to cover. Write to us, let us know. Thank you for being with us. This podcast is sponsored by IEEE Intelligent Transportation System Society. This was Dr. Mariam Kavishka from IEEE ITS Society.